Welcome to the drama of diagnosis, your portal to conversations about illness. The knowledge you gain here can inspire deeper levels of compassion and understanding. But it's the capriciousness of illness that suggests a little education can't hurt, in case something strikes you someday. Welcome to the Drama of Diagnosis. I'm June Scharf, and this episode is devoted to the topic of Meniere's disease. The occasion for focusing on it relates to singer and songwriter Huey Lewis, who recently revealed that he suffers from this extremely challenging illness, which affects the inner ear and causes hearing impairment as well as vertigo. I'll be exploring the details surrounding Meniere's disease with Dr. Cliff McGarrian, an otolaryngologist, also known as an ear, nose, and throat doctor. More details on him in a minute. I'd like to offer a little background, though, on Huey, who is 69 years old and has sold more than 30 million records as part of the band Huey Lewis in the News. Some of their hits include Heart of Rock and Roll, The Power of Love, If This Is It, Hip to Be Square, Working for a Living, and... I want a new drug. Huey first felt symptoms of Meniere's in his right ear about 30 years ago when he experienced what he described as a huge vertigo spell. It happened five years later and then five years after that. Then it stopped for a long time. It wasn't a serious problem until two years ago in 2018 when he had hearing loss in both ears expressed mostly by auditory distortion. This episode struck during a band performance in Dallas. He said of the incident, he couldn't hear anything and he sang out of tune. Quote, it was the worst night of my life, he said. The band's tour was abruptly canceled. Now, at best, he describes a good day as one where he can hear at a rate of about a 6 out of 10, with 10 being normal. When it's at a 3, he says he can barely carry on a phone conversation. Sometimes he can't even listen to music because it is so distorted. He's using hearing aids now, which can be helpful, but the problem persists. The condition also is unpredictable, which makes planning anything very difficult. He says his case is somewhat atypical, with hearing loss being the primary symptom and not the vertigo any longer. Huey made some very honest statements in 2019 during an interview that ran in the Whitefish Review Journal, issue number 24, which is a Montana-based publication. Montana is where Huey owns a 500-acre ranch because he likes to go fishing in the area. He said that this illness has, quote, absolutely ruined everything. He added that though he tries not to let it get him down. However, he admits that in the first two months of dealing with the more serious expression of the illness, where hearing loss was significant, he, quote, was suicidal. He said, I actually contemplated my demise, you know, like pills. This clearly speaks to how dramatically it impacted his life as a musician. Since then, he has developed some coping skills, one of which is reading more, he reports. He says, quote, when my hearing is really bad, I'm better off by myself because there's nobody I can't hear. I'm in my cocoon and I'm fine. He also has some fine distractions in two productions under development that feature his work. There's a musical called The Heart of Rock and Roll, using as its inspiration Huey Lewis and the News' songs and created in a style similar to what was done with hits belonging to Alanis Morissette in the recent Broadway show Jagged Little Pill. In the biographical category, there's a documentary film being shot by producers called Huey Lewis, If This Is It. 
It captures Huey's fight against Meniere's disease and features his more typical good humor and optimism. What's most immediately accessible is the band's latest album, released in early 2020. It's called Weather, that's W-E-A-T-H-E-R, and it's the band's 10th studio album. It features a limited song list of seven tracks, all recorded before his hearing loss. He admits that this may be his last album because he can't find pitch. So to offer some insight into the mechanics of Meniere's disease, Dr. Cliff McGarrian is my guest. He is the president and soon-to-be CEO of University Hospital System, a more than $4 billion comprehensive health system and one of the top networks of hospitals in the state of Ohio with more than 26,000 employees. He also serves as a professor of head and neck surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Dr. McGarrian co-founded University Hospital's cochlear implant program, and he and his team have performed over 1,000 cochlear implant surgeries, making it one of the largest programs in the country. His clinical career has been devoted to the management of hearing loss, chronic ear diseases, vertigo, and other otological and neurological issues. It's noteworthy here that his intense research interest in the pathogenesis of Meniere's disease has been funded by numerous agencies, including the National Institutes of Health and the Deafness Research Foundation. So with that, I welcome you to this conversation. It's really kind of fascinating, the whole story, really. There was a doctor in France named Prosper Meniere mm -hmm. who had been seeing a lot of patients who had ringing in the ear, um, episodic vertigo, um, and hearing loss, and up until that point, most of the people uh, in medicine in that time felt that that was a, a version of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And he concluded, after examining a lot of patients, that it was not epilepsy, it was not a central nervous system problem, it was a specific ear problem, and he went as far, uh, he took it a step further and hypothesized that the problem is an is a overabundance of fluid within the inner ear. In other words, within the inner ear, there should be just the right amount of fluid, but there's too much fluid in, in the inner ear was bloated. And what's, what's really fascinating was this was 1861, and a lot of, most people didn't believe him. And um, because at the time, to actually take out someone's inner ear and look at it, it was impossible. There weren't even x-rays in 1861, and let alone the ability to process the inner ear of someone who died. It wasn't until 1920s that two separate groups of doctors, um, uh, one in England uh, and one in Japan, had patients that had Meniere's that died, not from the Meniere's, mm -hmm. but willed their bodies to science. And at this point, they had the technology to decalcify the inner ear, cut it, and they even had, at the time, microscopes to look. And sure enough, what they saw was exactly what Prosper Meniere's hypothesized that there was a fluid enhancement within the inner ear space called the endolymphatic space. And so clearly that finding of endolymphatic hydrops, which is too much fluid in the inner ear in the space, is clearly associated with the disease. What has never been able to be proven is exactly how someone gets endolymphatic hydrops. We know some ways now. And more importantly, how exactly does the endolymphatic hydrops um, cause this episodic vertigo, which can be debilitating in the attacks, and the progressive hearing loss? 
So my research, when I was a full-time clinician and researcher, was I developed a mouse model. Long story, but I developed it. I didn't. I I created a model of endolymphatic high drops in a mouse. So we got to watch it from beginning to end, before the mouse had the high drops in many years, until after it had it for a long, long time. And we were able to find out that actually what happens in, in the inner ear in Meniere's uh, disease with endolymphatic high drops is two things. Number one, the fluid expands, and that starts killing the nerves. Okay. Not the hair cells, but the nerves. The nerves become affected because we believe there's a neurotoxic event gets set up in the inner ear. Hmm. Um, and then what happens, we think the episodic dizziness, June, is when there's these delicate membranes within the inner ear that are very thin, thin, mm -hmm. that the fluid pressure gets so much that the membrane bursts and then fluids mix and antagonize the nerves of balance so then the person spits. And that's what we believe to be the fundamental underlying pathophysiology of the vertigo attack, which is the breaking of the, of the fluid membranes, and then the hearing loss, which we believe is the neural... Um, pathology. The problem now still is that we don't know how to stop the neuropathology. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to uh, prevent necessarily. We have ways of treating and we can get into that, but we don't have a way to fundamentally say, okay, you have Meniere's, here's a pill or here's a surgery and you're cured. You can't cure it. You have to ultimately minimize the symptoms through interventions, medication, lifestyle changes, diet, these sort of things. The good news is usually you can control the vertigo. And the body does adapt to it a little bit sometimes? <clears throat> the body, on... marvelously, I think that's a very good point. Most cases of Meniere's disease only affect one ear. Um, uh, 15 to 20% affect both, but most are one ear. And what's amazing about our brain and our body is that when one ear is affected with Meniere's disease and the balance is upset, the other ear essentially compensates. Um, and ultimately, people can do very well. It's a little bit more difficult with people have Meniere's in both ears. But that's rare. It? It's rare, but it's I've had dozens, and I mean hundreds really, in my career of those kind of folks. Wow. And in between the, the vertigo and the hearing loss, there's some have described as hearing issues like cacophony. That's yeah, one word I've heard yeah, used. I think, I think that... Um, a distortion, I guess? I, absolutely. There's a couple of very common hearing distortions that people will report. Some people will report that there's a significant distortion, especially during and after a vertigo attack. Um, the hearing may get such that it goes down so low uh, that you can't make out words. And, uh, and even if you can make out words, that you can't understand the words. That's number one. Number two, most people will say there's a horrible ringing in the ear or tinnitus. There's a funny story about this, um, and this was written in the, uh, the Journal of American Medical Association many years ago, probably in the early 1990s. Um, most people, including you and me, have always read that Vincent van Gogh cut off his ear uh, because, for a number of different reasons, whether he was in love with somebody or he was mad at somebody. We have all know that Vincent van Gogh cut off his ear. Mm -hmm. But there was a group of researchers who got 
his um, his letters, had, got a hold of his letters, and concluded that he actually had Meniere's disease, and that he didn't know what else to do because of the attacks and the fullness and the pressure. He thought if he cut off this outer ear, mm-hmm. things would be fine, but it wasn't. So this wow. is just a theory. Yeah, interesting. So what percentage of people fall into like an intermittent category of, of symptoms versus a chronic sufferer? In my, uh, in my experience, um, probably 80, 75 to 80% of people, maybe in some cases up to 90 if they follow instructions, mm-hmm. will just be an intermittent sufferer. Um, it's a very small group that go down a path of relentless once a day, once a week vertigo attacks. The thing that really debilitates somebody is not so much the hearing loss, because remember you have hearing in your other ear if you're like the average Meniere's patient. The thing that is debilitating to somebody is the chronic imbalance in vertigo attacks. Now, many people, the 80% who have intermittent, may have one vertigo attack a year or maybe once every six months. But a small group will have it constantly. And in those people, there's a number of different, very effective interventions that we can do to help stop the vertigo. Okay, we're going to get to treatment. But among these intermittent people, it can last how long? Anywhere from 20 minutes, I think I've seen, to 24 hours? It lasts on the order of hours to a day or two. Yeah. Uh, which is distinctly different than a much more common form of vertigo called benign positional vertigo, which you may have read about. I've which, had it. Oh, have you? Okay, there you have Bad it. stuff. The little crystals. <laughs> yes. Uh, that typically lasts on the order of uh, seconds to minutes, mm-hmm. whereas a Meniere's attack will last in the order of hours to a day or two. And those are different parts of the ear that are affected. Crystals are in, in what part of the ear? The crystals, um, well, let's call it, yeah, benign positional vertigo is due to one of the inner ear, there's 30,000 crystals called otoconia that live in each of our inner ears. And these tiny otoconia are almost like little rocks which live on the cushions of all five balance organs. If one of them breaks loose, they typically, by virtue of the way our anatomy is, tumble into the posterior chamber of the the inner ear vertical, how do I say it, the vestibular system. Mm -hmm. Remember, the vestibular system is separate than the auditory system. They're connected, but they're separate parts. Yeah, the vestibular is part of the inner ear? Both, yeah, the inner ear has both uh, the vestibular system and the auditory system, uh, okay. which are together into one bony organ, okay. are somewhat separate, but have a continuous membranous inner gut, if okay. you will, that runs mm-hmm. throughout all of them. Okay. But your question was, in benign positional vertigo, the crystals... That is a problem that's limited to the balance organ mm-hmm. and is not typically involving the auditory part. Yeah. Whereas Meniere's involves usually the entire inner ear, both the balance and the auditory system. And a hearing aid isn't a solution. It actually can be in many, many cases. So if you have a permanent... The good news with Meniere's disease is oftentimes the hearing loss is temporary. In other words, the hearing goes down during a vertical attack and comes back up. Mm-hmm. The bad news is if you have a number of these attacks, it eventually goes down and never completely comes back up. Okay. So you're always left with a deficit. Many of those folks will do just fine with a hearing aid. Mm-hmm. If your hearing goes out completely to what's called profound deafness, the hearing aid wouldn't work. And then certainly if you have the same thing on the other side, we can get you a cochlear implant to restore your hearing. 
Okay, how do you offer a diagnosis? What tests are performed? I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to sound very fancy. Uh-huh. For the most part, the diagnosis of Meniere's disease is made by taking an excellent history okay. from the patient. Um, it is usually augmented by having a hearing test that helps show that there is indeed at the beginning a low frequency hearing loss. Um, there's not many more important tests that are mandatory. Usually with a good history, a good hearing test, um, you can make a tentative diagnosis. There's many people who believe, including myself, that if you have a hearing test that shows that there is a hearing loss, that you kind of got to do an MRI scan to make sure it's not something masquerading as many years disease, like okay. a tumor. Okay. So an MRI will reveal the inflammation? No, that's, no. that's a great thought on your, your part, but it, 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 the MRI is not done to reveal the inflammation. At this point, our MRIs are not sophisticated enough to show you the details of the tiny, tiny inner ear. Okay. Um, there are some newfangled MRI techniques that can show that, mm-hmm. um, but the average MRI scan is not done to look at the inflammation of the ear or the increased fluid. Uh, it's done to make sure there's not a tumor okay. that's tricking you into thinking it's Meniere's disease. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about incidents. How I understand you're a CEO now, you're running a hospital system that takes up your time. In your, in your practice, how often would you say you see this on an annual basis? Well, um, the best way to answer the question is that me and people like me mm-hmm. are what are called neuro, are otologists, I mean, and neurotologists. That means our entire practice is specialized only in ear patients. Mm-hmm. So as a result, it's kind of not fair to use my experience in seeing Meniere's patients as a general rule as to how often they show up in the community. Um, because they're all filtering to me in the region. You're like an emergency room doctor, you see. For Meniere's disease. Yeah. You okay. see him all the time. So I would literally see every day okay. a new Meniere's or a follow-up Meniere's patient. Yeah. Um, okay. Every day in my practice. As far as the demographics with um, who's most frequently struck by it, is there an age and a gender that you see more typically? We do see, and I do see, a much higher uh, incidence in women. Okay. Um, some people believe that has to do with possibly some hormonal um, uh, link to a predilection for fluid retention mm-hmm. within the inner ear. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, typically, the age is going to be uh, in their third or fourth decade of life, 30s to 40s. Okay. Um, very rarely in children, exceedingly rarely in children, very rarely in teens, um, but uh, third and fourth decade, uh, usually two to one women. Is there a, a hereditary factor? That has been studied up and down. And to answer your question, uh, <laughs> there appears to be families that Meniere's runs in the family. <laughs> the problem is that there's a couple problems with that is that many people mischaracterize their vertigo as Meniere's disease. For a long, long time, many people with benign positional vertigo told their doctor that they had many years, or vice versa, their doctors would say, their primary doctor back in the day, you got, must be many years, don't worry about it. So it's very hard to have a detailed history okay. of, uh, of genealogy, but there is clear-cut reports of families that have been scrupulously studied that do show inheritance. 
the, and, and with that, you'd immediately think, well, there's got to be a gene. There's got to be a genetic, so where's the genes? There is very poor evidence right now that we can um, <clears throat> locate a particular gene that is responsible for Meniere's. In other words, all those studies have not yielded too much. Okay. Uh, all right, based on some research I've compiled, um, when you talk about fluid retention, sometimes they say that eating salt is an easy fix. Eating less salt. Sorry. You're absolutely right. <clears throat> the first major treatment for Meniere's disease uh, in the turn of the century, uh, in the 1900s, was what's called the Furstenberg diet, which was uh, uh, a uh, doctor who later became the dean of University of Michigan Medical School and was an ear, nose, and throat doctor who described a very low-salt diet. And that indeed does help. Make no mistake. I have patients, June, who are fine all year, and then on thanks the day after Thanksgiving are calling my office. Why? Because they had the stuffing, they had the gravy, they had the salt, or people who have smoked fish, mm-hmm. a lot of lox, let's say, mm-hmm. high salt load, and that's when they get the vertigo. Clearly, a, a salt, low-salt diet helps. What about potassium, where there's a collection of that in the ears, which I completely do not understand? The there's, potassium factor. Yeah, there's three chambers, three chambers within the inner ear. There's a, there's three fluid chambers. And remember, I mentioned to you, Meniere's is characterized by having too much fluid in the middle chamber, called the scala media. Mm-hmm. Um, there, the other chambers that run parallel, called the scala vestibuli and the scala tympani. You don't have to remember those words, but what I can tell you is one of those chambers has a much higher proportion of potassium in it um, than the other two. When you have a burst of the membrane that is felt to be a cause of an acute vertigo attack, there is evidence that the potassium that was limited to one chamber now gets into the inner ear and stimulates and irritates the nerves of balance, which gives you this spinning sensation. Okay. Um, Then this also, there seems to be a side effect of, of nausea. Oh, yes. When you have vertigo. Nausea and vomiting oftentimes. Whenever, um, let me give you another example. Have you ever been on a boat and developed seasickness? Mm -hmm. Have you? Not too bad, but I know others who have. But what is one of the most characteristic symptoms? They're they're dizzy and they're nauseous and they may vomit. Uh Whenever you stimulate the inner ear, you will become nauseous and likely vomit if it's severe. It's a very common reaction to abnormal stimulation of the balance system uh, leads to this feeling of dizziness Mm -hmm. and then the nausea comes on and then the vomiting so it's very common what about the prognosis you said we were going to come back to that in terms Uh of treatments i i I think the prognosis is is always in my opinion is very very good i like to reassure all my patients that one way or another we can eliminate this vertigo from you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either going to be done through a low-salt diet. If that doesn't work, we're going to add some medication, particularly a diuretic, which is a pill that uh, gets rid of excess fluid in your body. I use a drug called Maxide. Um, if that doesn't work we and you're still getting dizzy day-to-day, we can put you on some medicine to suppress your balanced system. The problem with that is it makes you somewhat sleepy. Uh, drugs like 
Beclazine uh, and uh, bonine and drugs like that. If all those things don't work, uh, there are you can escalate the intervention. There's new evidence that injecting the ear, that is the offending ear, uh, with either steroids or perhaps a drug, which later on, if it continues to go down this road, can actually uh, start diminishing the chances for persistent vertigo, and that drug's called genomycin. Some people also choose, instead of injecting the ear with a medicine, choose to put a shunt in the inner ear. So that kind of makes sense, right? Because we have too much fluid in the inner ear. If we have a little shunt that, that takes and let some of the fluid pressure drain off, that's been shown to be successful in about 70% of cases. So that's called the endolymphatic sac shunt. Is a great story. You want another story? Absolutely. Um, during the uh, space program, as you may or may not recall, um, one of the early astronauts was a guy named Alan Shepard. He was one of the first to orbit the Earth along with John Glenn, and they preceded the Apollo uh, mission, which was designed in, in 69 to land on the moon. This astronaut, Shepard, who successfully went into space, and was scheduled to be one of the astronauts on the moon missions developed Meniere's disease. So severe that he was grounded by NASA. He could no longer be an astronaut. He did everything I just described to you. He did the low salt diet, he did the diuretics, he did everything. And he ultimately uh, went to Los Angeles to um, a surgeon who's a father of ear surgery in the world called William House and Dr. House did a shunt on him. And he had a cessation of all his vertigo, and he went back into space in one of the later Apollo missions. Wow. So um, the, the, the concept of surgery helping vertigo is, is real. That's, you, know, you can't base it just on one episode, I'm telling you about a famous person, but, um, and he's written about it, it's, it's public information. Mm-hmm. Um, but surgery can be brought in when medicine doesn't work. The simplest surgery, as I mentioned to you, is to shunt the ear, to put an inner ear tube in the inner ear, lower the pressure. And you've done many of those? Mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah. A lot, a lot, a lot, yeah. Um, and um, if that doesn't work, there is a much more destructive surgery. If, you, if the person decides they can't live with it, the hearing's no good, you could actually take out the inner ear. That's called a labyrinthectomy. Mm-hmm. Or if the hearing's still good, but you want to get rid of the balance effect, you can just cut the balance nerves and save the hearing nerve. That operation is being done a lot less than it was 10 years ago mm-hmm. because now we have these um, injections that tend to help. Where does the injection go? You actually put it right through the eardrum. So if you were my patient, you'd lay. So they're as, okay, go ahead. They're not asleep. It's an outpatient procedure, very simple. You'd come, you'd lay on a, you, your chair would lay you back. Uh-huh. I'd have a microscope. I'd be looking at your eardrum. Uh-huh. I would put a little numbing medicine on your eardrum. Okay? I thought when anything touches your eardrum, mm-hmm. you'll absolutely pass out. No, no, that's not true. I mean, this we do this all the time. Well, but, I know. I'm just saying, like, I thought the eardrum is so super sensitive. It is super sensitive, but we have this really um, very good numbing medicine. It's called phenol. For one second, it may burn, uh-huh. and then you don't feel anything on your oh. eardrum. And then what we do is we pass a needle, a 25-gauge needle, mm-hmm. through the eardrum, and we fill your middle ear mm-hmm. with a syringe. With The first thing we, should, we do is we fill it with some steroids, actually dexamethasone, which is a very 
common steroid. You're hearing a lot about it today because it's being talked about as a treatment for COVID. Uh, but we inject your middle ear with it. And that does is percolate from your middle ear into your inner ear through what's called the round window. And many patients will say their vertigo gets better. The only issue with that is you need repeat injections sometimes, repeat injections. So can it ultimately fix the problem or are you just it, gonna it, continually need treatment? Right, it will never, it, you know, the, the, the key thing you're trying to do with these many years patients, June, is somehow get them over the hump of having the relentless recurrent daily, weekly, or monthly attacks. Mm -hmm. You'll never cure them of many years, mm -hmm. but you sometimes the medication does it, sometimes the diet does it, sometimes you escalate to an injection, sometimes you have to go to a shunt, but about 75 to 85% of people, if you do something along this still conservative line, mm -hmm. they will essentially say, you know something, I'm, I'm not having any dizziness anymore. I still have a little bit of hearing loss, yeah. but I'm not having dizziness. Yeah. Okay, so... If you could explain, how do you do surgery on the ear? <laughs> how do you get in there? So if you feel behind your ear, if you put your finger behind your ear, you mm -hmm. feel there's a ridge behind your ear. Yeah, like a shell almost. There's a shell. Yeah. You make an incision. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're asleep for this. Uh -huh. You make an incision, and you kind of pull the ear forward, mm -hmm. and then you can see the bone called the mastoid bone. Okay. And you use a high-speed surgical drill, and you open up the mastoid, which is like a sinus. Okay. And it, when you open up the mastoid, you actually can see the inner ear. It's standing mm -hmm. right there. Oh. So you see the horizontal semicircular canal. Mm -hmm. You can see the posterior canal. And then in the operation that is the most common operation, which is a shunt, you drill along the covering of the brain called the dura, mm -hmm. the posterior fossa dura, if you do it carefully in the right way, in the right place, soon you'll start seeing tissue, which is actually the endolymphatic sac, oh. which is where the fluid ultimately drains and absorbs. And you take a very careful little blade, mm -hmm. and you incise it, you open it, you probe it, and uh, I usually leave a, a shunt inside, mm -hmm. um, which is a silastic sheeting, which keeps it open. Um, if you were to then decide that that didn't work and you wanted to remove the inner ear, you would actually drill out the whole inner ear, mm -hmm. uh, the labyrinthine portion of the inner ear. Now, if you want to attack the nerves, so you decided to do the thing where you cut the nerves, mm -hmm. you have to really remove some bone behind and open the, 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 the posterior fossa or the brain cavity, mm -hmm. pull the cerebellum, which is the part of your brain which manages your balance over, and you'll see the the nerves entering the inner ear canal. Wow! You have to you have to be very thoughtful, and know exactly where the balance nerves are and where the facial nerve and the cochlear nerve are, and you test them with little probes to to know which nerve is what. Is the person awake for that? No, they're asleep. Okay. okay. And then you cut the vestibular nerves uh -huh. with micro scissors, um, and uh, so that's how you get at it. With the surgery where you're in the inner ear where the fluid is, there's no way to just drain it? Well, that's what we're doing when you, I mean, well, it's when you say drain it, you're meaning... Um, Get the fluid out? Well, that's what we're kind of trying to do. Um, if you go too far into actually opening up the inner ear itself and not the drainage, yeah. you could damage the inner ear and trash the hearing. Okay. So you, the, 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 the safest way to, to, as you said, get the fluid out is to open up the... the so if you look at the inner ear, let's say here's the cochlea, there's a little 
drain that comes out and there's a sac. Yeah. The fluid comes down this pathway and gets mm -hmm. absorbed by the sac. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, one thought is you get Meniere's disease because this sac isn't absorbing the fluid. So if you open it, make an incision, and you put a tube in it that allows it to always stay open, the idea is now the fluid will always get okay. out. Okay, I see what you're saying. Uh, and then it's absorbed into the mastoid, which is the sinuses behind your ear. Okay. Well, I think we have covered all angles on this. Is there anything else you want to add that we haven't mentioned so far? Um, I can't stress the importance, June, of the following statement. The, the vast majority of patients with Meniere's disease if given the opportunity to try conservative therapies, will do very, very well. Um, I think upwards of over 80% of people. And so if you were my patient, or I had many years myself, the first thing I would do is go on a low-salt diet. That means less than 2,000 milligrams a day of sodium. I'd actually increase my water intake to about 8 to 10 glasses of water a day, which further would lower the sodium levels, which then would lead to a tendency to not retain fluid. Um, if that didn't work, I would take a diuretic uh, called Maxide. Um, if that didn't work, I'd try some injections of steroids into my middle ear. And then if that didn't work, I'd consider a shunt surgery in the hands of a competent surgeon who's done tons of them. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, the last thing I'll say is that the from all of our discussions, it's clear we've been talking mostly about the balance. The sad part about Meniere's disease to date is that we still don't have a good way to treat or reverse the hearing loss. That's something that we just don't know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. The only um, light at the end of the tunnel is now we know if you've totally lost your hearing from Meniere's that uh, cochlear implants help. We have a big paper coming out right now from our group that shows the hearing results with cochlear implants uh, in, in many years patients is very, very promising. Excellent. Well, Dr. McGarrion, I really want to thank you for your time. Thank you. And this has been exceptionally informative, and I'm sure it'll be very beneficial to people who have dealt with this or know people who are dealing with it. Everybody knows somebody who's dealing with it. <laughs> right. Thank you. Contributors to the Drama of Diagnosis include Emika Robbins, Research Assistant, Amari Jones, Sound Engineer, Beth Cabernet, Production Assistant, and Roy Minoff, Original Music Composer and Performer.